Today's guest is a contributor to my upcoming charity, Patient Safety Anthology, titled Highway to Heart, Humor, and Honesty in Healthcare, due to be published late spring, early summer. And I'm thrilled and honored to share him with you. He is Michael L. Millinson. Michael is president of Health Quality Advisors, LLC, and an adjunct associate professor of medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. His critically acclaimed book, Demanding Medical Excellence, Doctors and Accountability in the Information Age, addressed the appalling toll of medical error back in 1997, and he's continued to bluntly do so in numerous articles and speeches since then. And we have more information about Michael at the website speakupandstayalive.com. I am so attracted to his no-nonsense approach, and I know you will be too, so I want to get going. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be on it. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you here. So much to talk about. And, you know, Michael, a high percentage of people whom I interview for this program come to the patient safety world because of an untoward healthcare event that either happened to them personally or that they witnessed with a family member or a friend. And as I recall, you do not fit into this category. So uh, why the interest in patient safety? Now, that's correct. Uh, I uh, started out as a journalist taking a leave to write a book about how quality of care could be improved through the use of computers and information technology way back in 1994. And when writing the book, I discovered, to my surprise and, frankly, chagrin, a number of articles going way back on patient safety that talked about the toll and yet had no effect whatsoever on physicians and hospitals changing their behavior. And it, it really affected me uh, that we could have uh, literally the number that I came up with was 180,000 people dying every year, which more or less is uh, what we have today, a little bit more, and nobody doing anything systemically about it. It, it was really at a time when there was a complete silence. Uh, it was before it was even talked about openly uh, in the medical literature, there are just a few articles here and there. No one was doing anything systemically to try to address it, and and it affected me profoundly. And 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 really, when people ask me, you know, why are you doing this? Did something happen? Uh, what I say is, if I see more than a hundred thousand people dying, preventable deaths, but I don't know any of them, does that mean I shouldn't do anything? Exactly. And really, that's how I came to this movement. No, exactly. It's like a, a blind eye. You know, you're just about as guilty as the rest if you do nothing about it. So uh, I do understand that. So for years now, we've got the government, government entities, organizations are formed, symposiums, conferences. Everybody's talking about and trying to implement quality measurements. What is the problem? Well, the problem is, is that any quality measurement that shows that I'm not above average, which I know I am, must be wrong. And so when you try to implement measures, it's, yes, legitimately difficult in terms of uh, technical nature of measuring the quality of medical care, but it's also politically difficult because uh, people who honestly are trying hard and honestly believe they're doing the best that can be done do not react very well to measures that show that that's not true. And so it's difficult to get measures accepted. It's difficult to get them acted upon. Uh, and it's really a, a large cultural problem that we haven't really solved yet. Mm-hmm. I want to back up just a little for our listeners, perhaps. Quality measurement in healthcare, what does that mean? So quality measurement goes back uh, a long ways, but really 
the modern uh, version of it says that the quality of care is dependent upon uh, three factors, structure, process, and outcome. And the way to understand that is structure is, well, if you have a hospital that has all the right machines and has the doctors in place and nurses and fire doors and all the rest of that, uh, uh, that gives you a structure. Process has to do with the training. How do you train people? What process do the do they follow uh, when you're doing surgery? Do you know what you're doing? Uh, and outcome, of course, is what happens at the end. And all those three factors interrelate. Measuring structure is kind of easy. Uh, we can go and check off those fire doors and that you had training manuals. Measuring process can be difficult. And then measuring outcomes as a result of structure and process starts to be controversial because of the things that we have difficulty measuring. So if you and I both are doing heart surgery on a patient and one dies and one doesn't, is that because one of us was a better surgeon or was it because one of the patients came in much, much sicker and when you adjust for the risk involved in the surgery, um, actually we're both the same quality of surgeon. So that really is the problem in, in measuring quality. When it comes to safety, some of that is also true. But the barrier with safety to some extent has been the belief that certain problems are not preventable. And so, well, yes, a certain number of people are going to get an infection from this procedure no matter what, so you shouldn't say that I'm giving uh, unsafe or poor care. And that's been a real barrier because sometimes the perceived level of infections or other problems that people have and what it really could be are not the same. Uh, and so folks get used to a certain level of infections, deaths, whatever, and they're trying hard. They're not you know, doing anything obviously wrong, but in fact, those levels of deaths and infections could be much lower if they were open to different ways of changing behavior. And again, that's what it comes down to. Not bad people, but behaviors that need to change that people are often very reluctant to change. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can see how it would be very difficult to measure process and outcome. You've got continuing variables. You've got that human factor thrown in. So it's not easy to really measure and then manage healthcare. Well, let me give you an example of, of the way things get way more complicated way more quickly than you would think. On something that sounds simple, and then you start to get into it, and this gets to, well, when you figure out what the measure should be, how do you measure it? So one of the measures uh, that one of the uh, well-known uh, quality organizations, the National Committee on Quality Assurance, NCQA, has for outpatients, right, for doctors' offices or health plans or whatever, is the percentage of kids getting all the immunizations that they should get by age two. Sounds pretty simple, right? How, you know, kids need to get the shots. You need to get them by a certain time. They should get them by age two. And then you start to get down into the weeds and people say things like, well, is it all the kids who I see that I have to measure? Because I, can I take a sample? Um, does it have to be by their second birthday? Or what if I gave it to some kids the day after their birthday? Does that count? And, and so when you start to get down into all these different ways of measuring, 
then you get into a lot of controversy and a lot of people saying, well, that doesn't really count because I missed it by a day and, you know, that shouldn't count against me or whatever, or, or I sampled and that other guy counted everybody. And so you start to get into methodology arguments pretty quickly, sometimes done in good faith and sometimes because people just don't believe in measurement, unfortunately. Very messy, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. It, it is messy. And I, the way out of the messiness is to step back and say, look, you need to be systemically measuring, managing, and improving. And if you're not doing that, if you're not trying to have the highest reliability organization that you can, if you're relying on the fact that your doctors went to a really terrific medical school 20 years ago, that's not good enough. And so I think that while we can quibble about measures, a lot of the people who attack measures don't really believe in any measures, don't believe anything is measurable, or think that there's always exceptions. And that's, that's just not true, true either. So I think what we need is some good faith effort and, uh, if I may, a bit of humility about uh, uh, how good we are versus how good we could be. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think that puts this whole idea of quality measurement into some perspective because we hear a lot about that and I'm not sure that everyone really understands what that means. And often I wonder where the patient voice is in all of this as we all come together and try to improve patient safety. What responsibility lies with the patient, if any? Uh, I think that's a really important point. So the patient voice being listened to is extraordinarily important in all circumstances. In patient safety, one of the most haunting experiences that I'm sure you've had in the interviews you've done is to listen to someone, a mother or a father, who's lost a child and said, I knew something was wrong, but nobody would listen to me. Mm-hmm. And that is just such a, an awful experience to listen to, much, much less to have. And, and we see that see that all the time. So I think that's that's really important. At the same time, my view of patient safety is a little more extreme, perhaps. I think that while no system is foolproof, and so if you're flying in a plane and you see that there's flames coming out of the engine, you might want to tell the flight attendant and the, and the captain, even though, you know, presumably they know about it because you never know. But on the other hand, they're not relying on you to keep the plane safe. And I think that's the same with uh, medical care. Our medical care system should be so safe that if you go to see the doctor or you go into the hospital, even if you're afraid to speak up, even if you don't have the right language, even if you're older, even if you're disabled, even if you're passive, even if all those things are true, you're just as safe as the alert, English-fluent, highly educated, interactive patient. Safety should be the foundation of everything we do, and you shouldn't have to have someone speak up to keep you safe. Should patients speak up? Absolutely. Do they have a role today? Absolutely. Would If you asked most people who work in healthcare, would you go into a hospital, your own hospital, 
without someone else to sort of serve as a as a, a a monitor of what's going on, most of them, almost all of them, would say no way. So I understand that that's the reality, but I think that people who put responsibility into the patient's hands as if it should be there in an ideal world are, are totally mistaken. I should not have to tell anybody to wash their hands, period. The fact that the hand washing rate is roughly 50%, the fact that people who do 70% are overjoyed is not something to accept as a fact of life. It's something to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. After all, the fact that not washing your hands caused germs to be transmitted was discovered around 1830, and we're not talking about enormous technological changes in hand washing since then. And so I think that there's a difference between empowering patients so that you listen to our voice and telling us, you know what, you better speak up or else bad things will happen. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's really empowerment, although it might be a good tip for your safety. I happen to agree with you 100%, but until we get to that point, or maybe the fact that patients are now speaking up and feeling that they do need to be the ones that um, you know kind of put their hands out and say, hey, wait, you're not doing this. You need to wash your hands, or you need to do this, or I have this question. Maybe that will be the catalyst to get the system to change. I don't know that meantime, until we get to that world where you, know, you and I both believe that everybody equal, we go in and we don't have to be concerned. Until we get to that point, we can't sit back and do nothing. So how do we get to that point no, I, I, of, of I, zero I, I harm? I agree with that. And, you know? and so I, I just don't like it being referred to, uh, as some people do, as uh, in the healthcare system, we're partners. Or your role is to tell people, um, no, we're not partners. You're not doing your job and I'm doing this to save my rear end. That's not a partnership. That's because you don't know how to fly the damn plane. I'm having to tell you the engine is on fire. Yeah, I should because I don't want it crashing, but that's not my job. So I I think that people have to be aware. They have to speak up. Sometimes it's much easier to have somebody with you to speak up, the good cop, bad cop. Uh, It's tough in in a, a situation where you're dependent to speak up, but you absolutely have to. And perhaps the most important speaking up comes in understanding what's going on. Why are you doing this exactly? Am I, do I need this test? What, what are you going to do with the results? Maybe I don't need the test. You could do anything anyway. Maybe I could wait. Understanding the risks and benefits of being involved with the healthcare system is perhaps the most important thing that any patient can do. And to be realistic about what the healthcare system can do for you and not have false hopes or, frankly, false fears. And and I think that's really important in determining what therapy do I get. One of the examples that has been very popular is back pain uh, and uh, having realistic expectations as to whether you really need an MRI, uh, what doctors can do for you versus putting up with it, even if it's terrible and will eventually recede. So I think there's a lot more sophistication about that, and I think that's that's really important to, to understand the healthcare system as it is, as opposed to the healthcare system as we might wish it to be. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. I still think the patients are going to drive this bus towards zero harm. I, I just think there's more people. I, I hope so. I, I would say I would say it slightly differently. 
I don't think that patients as patients will do that because when we are patients, we're in too dependent a position. I mean, I know a particular patient advocate who works very hard towards driving the system towards zero harm, but even though she, she lost a child, when she's actually a patient in the small town that she now lives, because there aren't any alternative places to go, she's very careful about how she speaks up because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to alienate folks. Right. On the other hand, patients as activists, patients as a political force, patients as a uh, patient united force, I think can drive the system mm-hmm. towards towards zero harm. It's just that when you're sitting um, it, with nothing on but a gown, uh, it's really difficult to uh, drive anybody anywhere. No, and that's true. But the thing is, once they get out of that situation and yes, have absolutely. experienced that, absolutely. that fuel... Ab- ab- that, yeah. ab- absolutely. I agree with you completely. It's just in the moment it can be tough. Although, you know, my, my wife had a uh, rather severe bike accident and I was asking questions every moment while we took her to the hospital and transferred and everything else like that before surgery because I wanted to make sure. And that's okay because when I'm asking as opposed to her, I can be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. I still would love to have the patient rooms serve as a feedback center, like a real-time oh, feedback center. And that, that, see, that kind of feedback, I believe, is incredibly important yes. for safety, yep. for quality, for patient experience. And that's an area where hospitals and healthcare in general has lagged. You know, they're still serving the main customer, which is keep the clinicians happy so they don't have any unpleasant news, as long as you know nobody's complaining, everything's okay. And yet, particularly in hospitals, we sh- should have electronic feedback that's used to flag uh, uh, problems or um, you know good things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work with a uh, startup that unfortunately was not run perhaps as uh, um, well as it could have been, but one of its products, which which others have now and 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 perhaps will uh, permeate the system, was uh, using uh, natural language processing to look at patient comments to find safety and quality problems. And 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 the example I'll give you is right now, if uh, someone gets their uh, survey and they rate the nursing care a five. And they write in saying, the nurses were terrific. Uh, after I got that staph infection, they rushed in and they, they took care of me. I couldn't be happier. You know, you'll get nursing five, but nobody will look into the fact that, wait a second, why do you have an infection? Or maybe you fell or something like exactly. that. And, and so we need to use the patient's voice as a systemic means to create a learning health system. I guess mm-hmm. that's the way I would put it. Mm-hmm. And that's an aspiration that I think you're absolutely correct about. I'm not sure that it's an aspiration yet that's widely shared by the health system, mm-hmm. except kind of it rhetorically. No, I get that. And I understand that. And as I'm thinking about it, I also think there should be maybe an anonymous feedback center where the employees, the staff, the providers within the healthcare system can actually speak up without fear of retribution. Well, and, 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 and that's interesting. And that goes back to what I said uh, earlier in our conversation uh, about a high reliability organization. A high reliability organization enables the frontline staff, clinical or non-clinical, to report problems without fear of consequences that will hurt them in their job, mm-hmm. and does it in a way that really wants to hear and wants to listen and wants to act. Easier said than done, particularly in smaller institutions, but that's exactly what we need. We need to empower the frontline people, mm-hmm. and and one of the um, surprises uh, 
that I found in this in this journey was when you get to the frontline people, how much they know about what's going on everywhere, not just in their units, mm-hmm. and how perhaps the people further up the chain of command either don't know or don't want to know. Uh, so I'll, if, if I may, I'm just going to give you a personal anecdote. When I first you know, started uh, writing about this, I, I was at a, uh, a hospital where they talked about how a surgeon had been contracted by the health plan and gave them uh, the, the discounted rate to do some orthopedic surgery, and he was operating with the book open to know where to put all the different uh, screws and uh, plates and all the rest of this. And I said, well, how can you expect the head of the hospital or, or the chief medical officer to know about this? They weren't in the operating room. The only people who, you know, who were in there was the doctor and whatever nurse was, was in there in them and maybe the anesthesiologist. Only a couple of people saw it. And, of course, they gave me a withering look at my naivete uh, because, in fact, if something like that happens, everybody knows about it really quickly mm-hmm. through the gossip chain, right? And, and so I think that we need to enable those kinds of problems to be officially reported and quickly acted upon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you and I even mentioned this in a previous conversation. I was thinking about people like housekeepers and transporters, those that really don't have much of a voice and nobody pays them a bit of mind. But really, they're kind of at the sharp end of all of this. They're watching things happen in real time. And again, they have no voice and no credibility. Wouldn't it be great if there was a system, a way where they could say, look, this is what I'm seeing and I keep seeing it. We need to change this system. That, that's true. And, and, and interestingly, when you talk to people who are running high-reliability organizations, you hear them use exactly that example. You hear you know, physician and, and, and CEO leaders saying things like, the guys who uh, clean the room or the, uh, the people who take out the trash or the, the people who are the transporters, here's an example of where we listen to them and care was better. And so the, the, the people who are really committed to this understand that it's an entire team effort and that people who are non-clinicians are at the, the, the sharp end as well. Mm-hmm. And one more comment I want to make, because I don't want to ever seem like I'm anti-provider, because if I think about the burden that every doctor and nurse has every day they go to work, I mean, when I go to work, I don't have to worry if I'm going to kill somebody today. It just didn't cross my mind. So, you know, I almost can't even imagine what that must feel like and what kind of stress that places on on our providers as well. So I, they're working under extreme conditions. I agree with that. What I tell physicians is that I believe the practice of medicine is a holy profession, uh, whether you're an atheist or, or, or whatever, but it has a certain specialness that's extraordinary. But it is because I believe that it is a holy profession that I believe that the standards that clinicians should hold themselves to should be the ones that they profess, that if you are sworn to help and preserve life and there is evidence in the medical literature that shows that you can keep people safe, you need to follow that as opposed to waiting years. If there are hospitals throughout the country, not a lot, but some, that are significantly reducing harm, 75% over five or six years, one major medical center in St. Louis reported, then it is your ethical duty to follow what they're doing and try to implement it in your organization. 
that's really the most important thing is first do no harm. And it's because I believe that providers are holy and are doing something very special that I respectfully ask that they look up from the day to day and try to meet that obligation. You said to me the other day when we spoke, at what point does inaction become immoral or unethical? Well, so. that, 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 that's exactly it. I mean, all of us are busy, but we find time to do things. And I'll, I'll give you the example. The very first physician to get his fellow physicians to measure the quality of their care and then act upon that was a surgeon named uh, Dr. Ernest Amory Codman back in Boston around uh, 1914. And Dr. Codman went to Harvard undergraduate and Harvard Medical School and was a founder of the American College of Surgeons back when there weren't very many surgeons and he was a true blue blood. And he put out his end result idea and it essentially got rejected. And, and he wrote later that uh, he had discovered that there was a difference between your interest and your duty. Your, you did your duty if it came to you but you ran to do your interest. And I think that unfortunately is as true today as it was then, is that it's not that anybody will deliberately allow something unsafe to happen or deliberately shirk their duty to intervene in a case where somebody is threatened, but they might not go out of their way to institute a program to reduce infections or to institute a program for uh, improving the quality of certain procedures or to do some of the other kinds of things which frankly are hard because they involve culture change, not simply buying a new machine, and they're not always reimbursed, so that makes them even harder. They're not always appreciated because people don't know how dangerous hospitals can be. And, and that's really where we are, is that uh, the profession and, and leaders have to look at themselves and say, if I'm not doing these things year after year after year, when does that cross over from being busy and understandable to simply not really caring enough? And that's a tough question. It is a tough question, but I'm glad we posed it today. It's something to think about. I love talking with you, Michael Millinson, as we begin to wrap up. Is there anything we missed that you wanted to talk about? Well, I think that quality is improving, but not improving as quickly as it should be that essentially today we have made enormous progress in the sense that everybody is trying to make care better, but not everybody is trying to have zero harm. And I think that that's still something that's distressing. So I am cautiously optimistic, but would love to be even more optimistic than cautiously. <laughs> well, with folks like you, working on this, I think we're heading in the right direction. So I certainly appreciate you. Uh, where can folks then go to find out more about you, contact you, give us some of those places and spaces? Uh, my website is www.millinson.com, M-I-L-L-E-N-S-O-N.com, where the same uh, site goes from Health Quality Advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. If you Google my name, uh, plus Millinson, plus safety or quality, you'll probably come across some things I've uh, written, or you can go through my website. And it's M-I-L-L-E-N-S-O-N.com, Millinson.com. Well, any final words as we head out today? No, I, I, I appreciate the chance to speak with you, and I uh, appreciate the chance to uh, perhaps help people think a little differently about safety and quality. Michael Millinson, thank you so much for today. Thank you. 
Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.